is a Woodside Church podcast. I'm going to continue our series in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a guy that uh, got permission from the king of Persia to come back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And we've been studying that, and this one is entitled A Moment to Mark. Uh, when I first saw Tim write, write that, I thought, oh, perhaps he's sending me into Mark's gospel instead of Nehemiah for my preach. But then I realized that wasn't, case, wasn't the case. Uh, but I've given it a subtitle, Wall Completed, But Pressure Continues, because that is certainly what happened. And so we believe that, um, and this is so all over the world, because we re- everywhere in the world they are recognizing that church now needs to adjust to this world in which we are and how we uh, preach the gospel in that context. And so we believe Nehemiah is like a picture of that because he rebuilt. So I'm going to read from Nehemiah chapter 6. And it says this, Sanballat, Tobiah and Geshem the Arab... As I'm sure has been said in previous weeks, though I've been preaching elsewhere, so I haven't always heard. uh, These were three leading men in the areas around Jerusalem. Some of them were quite, especially Geshem, were quite important guys in their time. You can read about in other secular history. And the rest of our enemies found out that I'd finished rebuilding the wall and that no gaps remained. That's the moment to mark, all right? Amen. (laughs) Must have been great, mustn't it? Though we had not yet set up the doors in the gates. I've puzzled as to what that means quite. But if you go to old doors, old gates of cities, you've got the big gates, but then you have, which don't open very often, but then you have a door in it just to let people go in and out. So I assume that's what it meant. Um. So Sanballat and Geshem sent a message asking me to meet them at one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But I realized they were plotting to harm me. So I replied by sending this message to them. I'm engaged in a great work, so I can't come. Why should I stop working to come and meet with you? Four times they sent the same message. And each time... I gave the same reply. The fifth time, Sambalat's servant came with an open letter in his hand. An open letter. Normally letters were sealed, so you couldn't see it. Only only the person authorised to open the seal could read it. But this was like a letter to the newspaper or something on social media for everyone to read. And this is what it said. There is a rumour among the surrounding nations, and Geshem tells me it's true, not that he knew anything, that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. And that is why you are building the wall. According to his reports, you plan to be their king. He also reports that you appointed prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim about you. Look, there's a king in Judah. 
You can be very sure this report will get back to the king. That's the king of Persia who's allowing this to take place. So I suggest that you come and talk it over with me. I replied, there is no truth in any part of your story. You are making up the whole thing. They were just trying to intimidate us, imagining they could discourage us and stop the work. So I continued the work with even greater determination. Okay, I'm going to read the rest of the chapter a little bit later because the chapter speaks for itself in many ways. So the wall was now complete except for the doors being put in the gates. However, it wasn't the time to relax because the enemies now tried different tactics. They know they couldn't do direct attack anymore because the wall was around the city. To discourage the people and to trap Nehemiah who was leading them. Remember, our enemy, the devil, who's operating all the time, has many strategies. In fact, Paul writes about this in, his le in a letter to the Corinthians. He says this about the church in Corinth, so that Satan will not outsmart us, for we are familiar with his evil schemes. You actually need to know what the devil's up to. Okay, You don't take too much interest in him like some people might do on an evening like this. But you do make sure you understand what he's up to and what his strategy is. If you don't understand the enemy's strategy, you can easily get caught by it. And the first strategy here that the enemies tried here, which our enemy tries as well, was deception and diversion. Okay, so he was trying, they were trying to deceive them. Just come and have a little chat with us. It sounded very reasonable. And let's have a meeting to discuss it all, they said. Well, this was much better than saying we're going to attack you tomorrow. So maybe, maybe that would be reasonable. But let's do it on the plain of Ono, which was 27 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It sounded reasonable, but it was a diversion from the great task. And it was a deception because, actually, Nehemiah understood, firstly, that it was a diversion because it would have taken him, Nehemiah away, away for at least three days. It would take a day to get there, a day for the meeting, a day to come back, 27 miles, doesn't sound much now with motorways, but when you were going on a horse, it was. And or, or they probably would have kidnapped him, or worse. Okay. And so they were trying to divert him from the main thing that God had called him to do. They were persistent. Four times they invited him. Beware of the devil's persistence. Sometimes you overcome something, then you overcome it again. 
whatever it is that gets you. And then he say, oh. And you give in because he's so persistent. Because he knows your weaknesses and he'll play on them until you give in. Beware, therefore, of persistent diversions, and equally, beware of what seems reasonable, but will probably take you away from what God has called you to do. Now, today, diversions are even more plentiful. Some of you have got one in your hand right now. Okay? And some of you have already looked, some of you have already been diverted from what I'm saying. You've looked at something, you know. Sometimes we used to, if we were away from home, we had to wait till we got home or could turn the radio on until we knew the result of a particular match. Now, I mean, that's far more important than anything else that God may be calling us to do. And it's only just a little one, just a little thing. And we really want to know what's happened to such and such, don't we? And that message, I mean, no one would think of walking into this building, grabbing hold of you and telling you something. They would just regard that as sort of a little bit antisocial, unless you, it was a medical emergency. But they can still do it now, and you can get distracted. And all sorts of things. I find, I even battle with this, you know, I'll be honest, it affects us all. I mean, even Tim might have one or two things on this one. I don't know. But, uh, I, I, you know, sometimes, often, when I get up in the morning, and I try and in the morning read the Bible and pray, doesn't, when you do it each day, it's entirely up to you. But I do it early morning. And the thing is, I use my iPad for that because I've got lots of translations on my iPad, and it's quicker than getting six Bibles down, and so I just flip between them and all the commentaries are there as well. And I can get interested in all sorts of things, you know? Now that's just small illustrations in our personal lives, but I tell you, there's so, there's so much things around to stop the work of restoring God's people to what we should be. So much to distract us from living for the kingdom of God, building the church, reaching the nations with the gospel. There's so much else that could distract us from it. And we're living in a multiplicity of them today. Even dare I say this, people get distracted by strange Christian doctrines that they read on the internet. And so often people get more pastored by strange things they read, by a lot of it during the pandemic has been on all to do with the end times again. And is the pandemic a sign of the last days? Jesus said, whether it's earthquakes, pestilence, which is another word for pandemic, wars and rumours of wars, and he said, but the end is not yet. So Jesus said it's not, okay? Jesus said, 
the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in every people group, every ethnic group, then the end will come. That's the urgent thing. Let's get the gospel out. The good news of Jesus to the world. And people get diverted and all sorts of strange ideas. And we all debate it. I read it somewhere. Diversions from the main thing that God has called us to do. The second tactic was the rumour mill. It's an old-fashioned expression, but uh, forgive me, I'm a bit old-fashioned. But the, it's just all the stories that go around. You know, everybody is saying it. As a church leader, I quite often hear that. Someone wants to complain about it. They say, it's not just me. Everybody's saying it. All sorts of people are saying it. So I say, who? Oh, no, no, I can't give you their names. <laughs> but that's what was going on here. Everybody says that you're really on a power grab, Nehemiah. You want to take, you want to make yourself king. That's what's going on. Everybody's saying, and Geshem, he says it's true, as if that's the authority. How does he know what's on Nehemiah's heart? But that's how it works, and how it works today. Very, very often. The rumour was that Nehemiah was in it just for his own position, to get noticed, to have more authority. Incidentally, that is a real temptation for believers, especially if you're in any degree of leadership. So I don't despise that. But actually, that was not Nehemiah's heart. He was a humble man who just worked alongside all the other people and gave credit to them not, and to God, not just to himself. And so they accused him of that. Now, false accusations are a very hard thing to handle. Because how can you prove you don't think that? You know? But somehow, Nehemiah was able to just say, no, that's not true. I'm not receiving that accusation. And it's Satan's work generally is to accuse you and make you feel bad. He's the accuser of the brothers and sisters, which it was here. But the trouble was, they were talking about, yeah, everybody's saying it. And accusations are very hard to counter, as I said, and very disturbing emotionally. But could I just ask you, do you contribute to false reports? Do you pass on something you read on social media which you have no way of checking whether it's true or not. We can easily do that, you know. The Bible calls that bearing false witness. It's against the Ten Commandments. But we don't know. But it sounds juicy. And you retweet, or that's just me, that's the only one I use. But uh, you, you pass it on. I read just recently a, 
an apology from a Christian leader I greatly respect in another nation. And he put, he said, I apologize for passing on that story which was completely untrue. Okay. Do we ever do that? We say, well, I read it somewhere. That was, that was what was going on here. Sorry, I hope you don't mind me being direct here. Because I'm not here every week, I can be. Okay. <laughs> so, be careful. Often people say to me, well, I read this on the internet. It's very useful, the internet. It's also quite harmful if you don't check things out properly with proper sources. Okay, let's carry on. This was how Nehemiah was reacting. He says this, verse 9. They were just trying to intimidate us. Imagining they could discourage us and stop the work. So I continued the work with even greater determination. Discern when it's intimidation. Discern when it's in discouragement. You know, many of us get discouraged anyway. And we don't need other people to discourage us. But learn to resist it when people do. Okay, and learn to resist discouragement. Later, he says, I went to visit Shemaiah, son of Deliah, and grandson of Mehelabal, who was confined to his home. He said, let us meet together inside the temple of God and bolt the door shut. Your enemies are coming to kill you tonight. This was the prophet. But I replied, should someone in my position run from danger? Someone in my position enter the temple to save his life? No, I won't do it. I realized that God had not spoken to him. But he had uttered this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. They were hoping to intimidate me, that's that word again, and make me sin. Then they would be able to accuse and discredit me. Remember, O oh my God, all the evil things that Tobiah and Sambalat have done. And remember Noadiah the prophet and all the prophets like her who have tried to intimidate me. So there are lots of prophets involved in this. Prophets and prophetesses, we might say. So on October the 2nd, the war was finished. Just 52 days after we'd begun. That was very good going. <laughs> when our enemies and the surrounding nations heard about it, they were frightened and humiliated. They realized this work had been done with the help of our God. During those 52 days, many letters went back and forth between Tobiah and the nobles of Judah. The nobles were those that should have been supporting Nehemiah, but really were not terribly helpful. For many in Judah had sworn allegiance to him because his father-in-law was Shechaniah, son of Arar. And his son, Jehonanan, was married to the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. So I'll explain all this in a minute. 
they kept telling me about good Tobias, good deeds. And when they told him everything I said, and, and then they told him everything I had said, and Tobiah kept sending threatening letters to intimidate me. So, what's this about? Well, Nehemiah then went to sea, probably after being summoned to an apparently trusted prophet, Shemaiah. It seemed that the prophet was confined to his home for some reason, though he couldn't have been too serious because he was going to go to the temple. But he obviously wanted Nehemiah to be seen going into his house because everyone would say, Nehemiah is going to inquire of God with the prophet. Because in those days, in those countries rather, you always know who goes to everybody's house. And so, um, Shemaiah dressed up his message in poetic form. The prophets, if you read the prophets of the Old Testament, they often spoke in poetry. That's why it's set out in our Bibles. We don't recognize the poetry in English very well because poetry is hard to translate. But most of the prophets often spoke in poetry. And that's what actually Shemaiah does here. But the English translation can't really get it across. It's something like, for they're coming to kill you. Coming to kill you tonight. There was a rhythm to it in the Hebrew. And Shemaiah's proposed solution said, let's go into the temple and let's hide there. Actually, that was not permitted for Nehemiah because he was not a priest and could not go beyond the outer court of the temple. So Shemaiah was saying, let, and that's why Nehemiah said to him, said, then the, everybody will say, I've sinned. Because there was a king a few years before, before they went into captivity, called Uzziah. And he did that. He went into the temple and was, even though he'd been a good king until that time, was totally discredited because he went where only the priests should go. And there was an important distinction between the role of the kings and the role of the priests. In, a, in the Old Testament. And so, the, and so, Nehemiah refused. See, hired prophets were obviously part of Sambalat's strategy. Here, the enemy tactic was to use prophecy to intimidate rather than strengthen. I'm always wary of so-called prophecies that intimidate because they're meant to be to strengthen and encourage. Yes, that strengthening can sometimes come with a godly warning, so I'm not saying they all have to be positive, but here he was trying to intimidate Nehemiah, make him afraid, and therefore make him sin through fear. And there was also this prophetess used in the same way, having been bought by Nehemiah's enemies. We can see this in Nehemiah's prayer. 
false prophecies need to be assessed clearly. And again, in the Christian church, you often get things. There's a whole batch of prophecies from recognized prophets last year that Donald Trump would win the election, and he didn't. We have to say that actually that needs to be assessed. And also, we have to be careful what prophets are addressing, because if you start combining the gospel with politics, you'll straight away be in trouble anyway and start prophesying into that. You understand? And the war was then completed, and it was a testimony to the faithfulness and help of God. The threats backfired, and the success with God's help turned the enemy's strategies onto the enemy itself. Because it says the people, got, the people, the nations around, got frightened and humiliated. What have they been trying to do to Nehemiah and the people? Frighten and humiliate them. And it turned around in the, in, in the is it Proverbs or Psalms, Tim will tell you, somewhere it says you, some people build a, build a pit, cover it over, and then fall, it into themselves, fall, it in, fall into it themselves. And that's effectively what was happening here. And so, lessons from us about Nehemiah. And I'm going to go through these quickly because my time's nearly gone. Most of the lessons here relate to Nehemiah as a wise, mature leader. This is a great chapter for any leadership training. But I want to address all of us, because all of us are to lead in some way by being examples, even if we're not in any official position of leadership, and we all need to grow in maturity and wisdom and overcoming the enemy's tactics and strategies, temptations, so we can all learn from this chapter. So how did Nehemiah react to the various challenges? Firstly, he was committed to the great work he was called to and would not be diverted. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. That means seek first Christ ruling into every situation in which we're involved. That's what that means. That's our great work. Rebuilding for the sake of the kingdom of God is a great and noble task. Secondly, he didn't weaken when the temptation was persistent. Okay? He didn't let himself get worn down. This is a time not to get worn down. Many people, even many Christians, have been worn down by the pandemic. Now, I understand that, but don't let it wear down the brightness of your flame for Christ. He did not engage with the false rumors, other than to say they're not true, but trusted in God to vindicate his work. He said, just pray to God, remember me, God. He refused intimidation and discouragement but continued the work with even greater determination. Is that how you react to the enemy? I'm even more determinedly going to serve God. He tested prophecy. No, sorry, I've left one out. Number four, 
When the prophet prophesied threats, Nehemiah considered the influence of his position on others. He first thought about others rather than himself. He said, how could a man like me? I've been an example. I've worked and built with the rest of the people. I've been the one telling them not to be discouraged. I've been the one telling them we can overcome the enemy. How can I then flee? what, What will that say to all the rest of the people? And this is what we must consider. If I give in, what will that say about the kingdom of God to people around me? If I give in to temptation at work, what will that say to all those I've, my life has witnessed to up until that time? You understand? And he thought of the others, not himself. Because the key word in the New Testament for leaders is example. Scylla and I, as we've travelled, have often had to think of our act- the effect of our actions upon others. You know, some places we go to, Western speakers, in fact, people have said this to us. Normally when come people come from the West, they stay in better hotels. They stay... They just come into their sessions. They have their meals in a separate place. That's when you're going to countries. Well, I remember someone saying to us, you, you sleep in the same accommodation as we do. And you sit with us at the meals. Yeah, of course. Because we're an influence. We don't claim something special. Unless it's for security reasons, which I have had to do sometimes, because if a place where a Westerner is going to be kidnapped, it's probably best to be safe. That will be easier for them, actually, because they feel responsible for us. But other than that, it's very important. He tested prophecy by obeying the higher authority of Scripture. This is the highest authority for us. Prophecy is always tested by this. Now, I'm not despising prophecy. Prophecy is very important. All the things that I've done strategically have been as a result of prophetic words to me. But this is our authority. And this said, Nehemiah mustn't go into the temple. And the prophet said, go into the temple. Which do you take authority for? The prophecy or the word of God? He entrusted his reputation to God and let God deal with the false prophets who tried to instill fear. Seventhly, he gave glory to God for the work of building the wall and identify with the people as doing it with them corporately and didn't claim it was his leadership charisma that had done it. Okay. And finally, he handled with grace the disloyalty of the so-called leaders of Judah who should have been on his side. But these leaders, they were enticed away by family and financial interests. All that business about they respected him because he was married to so-and-so and and he was the son-in-law of so-and-so and and they'd all got 
the nobles had all got into who's married to who, who's the family, where are my financial interests. I find that, you know, as I've travelled around the world. I remember one particular situation. I won't name the country. Um, I went there and there was, a, there, was a, there was a big family there and they had four or five sons who were going for God amazingly. One of them became my interpreter. We had a, they were absolutely tremendous, all supporting all the things I was teaching. They were committed to the church. They were fantastic. Then... They had another brother, big family it was, and he was not very godly, and in a particular meeting was very rude to some guests to the meeting who'd come from outside. And so the leaders of the church had a word with him, which they needed to, because he mustn't be rude to guests. Do you agree with that? (laughs) Okay. Went back. Few months later, all these other keen young men had all left the church and given up. Why? Because family was more important. Family was controlling them. Hello? I don't know if any of you from countries where family is very, very strong can identify with that. But they all left because. Someone in the family had been rebuked. And they did it in a gracious way. I know, I know them very well. Understand? That's what was going on here. These family ties were in the end more important than the work to which God was calling them. Whereas Jesus is actually tells us to care for our family, but he also is building a new family. And he said... Everyone who does the will of my Father in heaven, he said, is my mother and sister and brother. That's in the context of when his mother and brothers and sisters were trying to take control of his life. I tell you, I've come against some stuff when I've preached that in some places. Okay. You understand? That's going on. And that's what's going on here. Oh, he's related to so-and-so. And his son-in-law is such-and-such. And he's got someone famous in his family. That's very important. Far more important than Nehemiah's work of doing the build, rebuilding the, the wall. No. Let's give our priority to the things that are our priority. And God is calling us to that today. To see... That however we need to adjust church in this area, and we want to be open to that, we also know that in this hostile atmosphere in many ways to the church in Britain today, and the need to rebuild after the pandemic, um, that that's such an important work that we're all called to do. And Nehemiah teaches us how to not get distracted for it. So, do we recognize we're about a great task? Hello, anyone? Go on, you can talk to me here, all right? Do you recognize that? Okay.
Are we able to stand against enemy diversionary tactics? Are you going to try? Do we see ourselves as examples to others, particularly those outside the church who will be watching how we behave, not at what we say? Hmm? Let's commit ourselves to seek first the kingdom of God. Amen? Let me pray for you. Thank you for this great example. Thank you for this book. Thank you for all the teaching we've had in this series. Lord, I really believe it was your leading that led Tim to this book and to help us go through it as a church. And Lord, we want to say we commit ourselves to following you and to not get diverted by all the things around. Lord, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. This is a Woodside Church podcast.